proteges coming up, they need mentors and we mentors need successors because we need to prepare that next wave of people coming behind us to take over, not our job, not our career, not our company, but Marianne, we need them to accept the role, the stewardship of our life's work. And if we don't prepare them for that stewardship and it implodes on their watch, then a case could be made that you and I sit back and say, was our life for not? Was our career for not? There are opportunities for our work and careers everywhere, if you know where to look. That's easier said than done, especially in our fast-paced and constantly changing world. Marianne Fairmouth is talking to experts, employers, and job seekers to bring you insight and understanding about what's possible. This is Career Can Do, where we're navigating the new work world. Welcome to the Career Can Do podcast, a podcast dedicated to helping you navigate the new work world. My name is Marianne Fairmouth. I'm an executive recruiter, multi-genre author, corporate trainer, and nationally syndicated columnist. And today I'm just delighted to have a person on my show that I have the highest regard for. Dr. Donald McNeely is a professor of engineering at the prestigious Northwestern University as well as a CEO of a very prominent company in the Chicago area. Dr. McMillie, in my opinion, has his finger on the pulse of the real world. One of the things, one of the quotes, the Chinese proverbs that he really likes to, to, to reflect upon is, may you live interesting times, but as a leader responsible for making a significant contribution in the new work world, he will punctuate that with, these are indeed interesting times. So without further ado, and after that incredibly long introduction, help me welcome Dr. Donald McNeely. Hello, Dr. McNeely. Well, hello, Marianne, and welcome and hello to all the guests. It's certainly great to be here. And Marianne, you and I don't know each other a long time, but our paths do seem to cross often in different cities. But I've got to tell you, your network is really second to none. So thank you for this opportunity to share some thoughts. And I want to Thank you for all you do for our industry. So good to be here. Thank you so much. You know, I, I feel privileged to have you on the show. And uh, I know you're going to give our listeners a lot of good information. But Dr. Ailey, tell us about this Chinese proverb and why, you know, why you feel so strongly about it and why you even feel like it needs to be punctuated a bit right now. Yeah. So I'll give you information. I'll let the audience determine whether or not it's good or applicable to them. I don't want to be presumptuous to think it's going to be of value. But in a typical professor orientation, let me first lay the foundation. And, you know, in life, and I think you probably can personally relate to this, there's a particular journey that we embark upon, and things are supposed to unfold in order. And throughout life, you're going to encounter what the social scientists would tell us is three, no more than four, what they call SEE, significant emotional events, when someone loses a spouse unexpected when a child predeceases a parent in death, when things occur out of order. From the time you experience that significant emotional event, you will never live life the same. And if you look at a company, it's an organization. The lowest form of an organism is a single cell amoeba. But if you take and aggregate people together, they're living, breathing organisms, and together in aggregate, they form this thing called an organization. The organizational equivalent of that significant emotional event is something called a point of inflection. And as your company journeys on decade after decade, you are periodically going to encounter these points of inflection 
where you need to rethink your historic business model, irrespective of how successful it's been. There's something occurring out there in the world that causes you to rethink, causes you to pivot. Now, in the span of a 40-year career, if you're going to experience only three of those, no more than four, as a leader, you've got to be ready to stand and deliver in those points of inflection. And the timing of this conversation and directly to your point of may we live in interesting times, you can check that off. We are indeed in the middle of interesting times. And I suggest to you in the span of your career and my career, we are right now smack in the middle of one of those points of inflection. So I don't think there'd be anybody that would debate whether or not we are living today in interesting times. I think your points are very well taken. So how do we navigate that in the best possible way? With all this change that we've all encountered over the last two or three years, how do we navigate in the new work world for the best of our own career path, but more importantly, I think, for the greater good for all? I mean, how do we navigate these changes, Dr. McNeely, to make a significant impact, to help not only ourselves grow in our careers, but also make a contribution to our employers? And how do we get to that mindset also? A very good question and very well framed. If you look at the popular narrative today, where are we going to find our welders? Where are we going to find our tool and die makers? The reality is I have great confidence in this thing called the free market. And if we have too many lawyers and not enough welders, eventually people will stop going to law school and start going to welding school. So I have great confidence in that. And where I have shortage of skilled workers, I can always automate. I can always put robotics in. So those are not the things that keep me up at night. What keeps me up at night is where are the future leaders going to come from? Because the real shortage is leadership, true leadership to navigate these points of inflection. And as we speak today, look what's going on in the Ukraine. And America reaches out to President Zelensky and says, we can give you exile. And he says, I don't need help leaving the country. I need help with weapons. You know, there is a true leader. But I think that's the shortage we have. So to your point, in this point of inflection, it's unfolding along the lines of a pure duality. I don't want to say that my point of inflection is more difficult than the generation that came before or the generation that will come after, but it is unfolding with a very significant Chinese wall on this duality. Now, what do I mean by that? Our industry as it exists today, it's an industry that's very rich in tradition. We have established unparalleled success. And the people that have led those accomplishments are a generation proud of those achievements. I mean, after all, you know, our industry, our generation built the nation's infrastructure. We created the nation's national defense system. There wouldn't be a manufacturing sector if there wasn't an industrial sector. So none of that exists without what we do. So we have great pride in that role that we've played in the success of this nation. The next generation, on the other hand, I've got to tell you, I'm in a classroom with them every week. This next generation, of rising stars. They are talented. They're smart. They're absolutely capable. So what's the problem? They're reluctant to embrace our narrative. They don't necessarily want what we want. They push back a few little bit. They want more out of life than just a great job. Now, I think they mistakenly think that's all we wanted. We did want a good job, but we recognize what that job represented as a vehicle to other things in your life health insurance, standard of living, the ability to send kids to college, and on and on, including the ability to support charities and research and foundations. Protégés coming up, they need mentors, and we mentors need successors because we need to prepare that next wave of people coming behind us to take over not our job, not our career, not our company, 
Well, Marianne, we need them to accept the role, the stewardship of our life's work. And if we don't prepare them for that stewardship and it implodes on their watch, then a case could be made that you and I sit back and say, was our life for not? Was our career for not? So we've got this passion to prepare them. They don't necessarily want to embrace the narrative because they think they want more out of life. So to your question about what advice will we give them, I would say don't be so quick to dismiss this thing called work. It's not a dirty word. I encourage them to embrace this. So the reality is work is not just what we do. To a great extent, this thing called work is who we are. We identify with what we do for a living. You know, I give the example of you bump into a gal in a bar and you say, what do you do for a living? Well, I'm an engineer. Oh, where? At 3M. As opposed to you bump into the gal in the bar and you say, what do you do for a living? I work at 3M. Oh, what do you do? I'm an engineer. Whether she leads with the company she works for or leads with her profession tells you where her loyalty is. Work is absolutely a beautiful thing and a nation that works does some wonderful things. You know, just think this environment we have in the United States where we embrace work. You know, we're one of the wealthiest nations in the world. In just 240 plus years, we command 25% of the world's output. We have one of the longest life expectancies. We have one of the smallest infant mortality rates. You know, in the end, that comes from us working each and every day. You know, if I could just default to my economics background for a moment, you know, in a capitalistic environment, everybody in that environment goes out and they buy a shovel. They buy their own shovel and they go out every day and they dig dirt. And at the end of the day, they take home all the dirt that they themselves dug, as opposed to a socialistic environment where you're all given a government shovel, you all dig dirt all day long and you throw it in a community pile and you divide it equally at the end of the day. I like this free market capitalistic environment we're in. So I would tell this next generation to differentiate themselves by embracing this concept of work and enjoying it. And I'll just close that particular answer with the words of Sigmund Freud, who said, and I mean, he meant men as gender neutral, but for a man to be happy, he needs just two things. He needs someone to love, and something to do. And how many times have we seen people sell out their company, put a pile of money in the bank, and they're not happy? So at the end of your life, you really need to reflect back and say, did I have someone to love? And did I have something to do? So this thing called work that people are reluctant to embrace, in all due respect, it's half the recipe for a good life. That's the advice I'd leave that next generation. Well, I think that's great advice. And, you know, I refer to my sweet dad, Dr. McNeely, my dad had an eighth grade education, but he was one of the smartest men I ever knew. He owned a company. He sold the company to a huge franchise. It was a hamburger joint. He had the idea of McDonald's and Burger King before they ever got started. He was really smart, but I worked for my dad since I was 11 years old. What he told me was, you can become or do anything you want, but you got to keep two things in mind. You got to work really hard and you got to not think about me. You got to think about we. What are you going to do to help somebody else? Okay. And I never forgot that. And my dad wasn't real polished and he wasn't refined. But I remember those words. And I remember one little man used to come in the, the restaurant. He was a real old man, all decrepit. And he'd say to me, Marianne, you be nice to that little old man. You be nice to that little man because he doesn't have any family. And it, it, well, the way you make his eggs, the way you make his hamburger, it makes his day. And, you know, I never forgot that. So I think you're right. And I think that it's about mindset. It's about, you know, it doesn't matter how old we are, what generational sector we're in. Let's look at the, the we as opposed to the me. I don't think we can ever fail like that. Do you agree? I agree 100%. And, you know, I'm the product of a father that came from a large family from a farming community. And he, too, was educated, but not formally so. Very parallel to the story you share about your dad. 
But I remember him telling us growing up, your candle burns no brighter blowing someone else's out. And okay, that's the kooky dad thing. You know, somebody wrote a book one time saying the shit my dad used to say. <laughs> but years later, I'm sitting in the classroom in an Ivy League school, and they're talking about the perils of negative selling. It's basically a polished up version of my dad's lesson. So I couldn't agree more with that, that wisdom handed down to you by your father. He's spot on. Well, thank you. Now, I have to say this too, Dr. Manili, as an executive recruiter here, I work with companies all over the nation and some international. And I have to say, when I present a candidate from an Ivy League school, they might get a little more attention than if they don't have an Ivy League degree. In some cases, not all. All right. I think, you know, to get into a school like that, you have to have higher GPA. You have to work harder. But I know you you are a professor at Northwestern, and it's one of the best schools in the country. I'm very familiar with the school. Tell us, is it more difficult to be a student at Northwestern? I mean, is, are the curves or the grades, it's harder to get an A or a B there? I mean, tell us a little bit about that and what you can talk to us about as far as uh, getting an education from a school like that. And I know, you know, you're a professor there, and I'm probably asking you a very, very dangerous question here. Tell us a little bit about that, because I know there's a lot of words of wisdom or, or schools of thought on that these days by people like Ellen Musk and, and some other people that are on the Shark Tank. But what is your take on going to a school of that caliber? It's a dangerous question. And I would tell you 99 out of 100 people you ask that question to in my position would tell you no comment. But that is not how I am wired at all. So I do have some opinions on this, and they're going to be rather controversial. We know the political disposition of most college campuses. So as an executive in a for-profit environment, often the question I get is, how am I still employed? How have I not been run out by now? But, you know, at the graduate level, students really admire somebody that makes a payroll. There's that empirical evidence that these particular theories work. So having said that, you know, we have elite schools. An elite school is a school that has an acceptance rate of less than 15%. And so since you brought up Northwestern, I'm very proud of my affiliation with them. Just tell you, at the undergraduate level, we get 40,000 applications a year for about 1,900 freshman seats. So our acceptance rate is about 8%. If you look, you know, 92 out of 100 people that apply don't get in. Now, I'm in the grad school, but by any measure, it is an elite school. And when you think of elite school, you think of the Ivy League schools, you know, and I spent some time there and there's eight Ivy League schools. So I do think coming from a prestigious hiring school opens up some wonderful opportunities, but it's not necessarily that the quality of the education was any higher. That might shock some people. I think the difference is the network, the network that you have. They do a great job of networking throughout the alumni, and those alumni are typically in some pretty high-level positions. Now, I will tell you, in our industry, I have noticed the greater success with the BC student. And some students end up a B or a C because when they're not going to school, they're working. They're delivering pizzas. In the old days of us dinosaurs, they maybe had this thing called a paper route. Modern-day paper route is kids are caddying at a country club. They're getting up at 6 o'clock in the morning, getting on their bike and driving over the golf course in hopes that they get a loop. And the reason that they're a B or C student is they've got to supplement their cash flow and they're doing it themselves. Their parents have done everything they could. Now, let me tell you, don't come out of that BC environment with a chip on your shoulder because what it communicates to people like me and other executives is you can multitask. You can multitask. In the prestigious schools, I can tell you within weeks of a class, 
who's got the potential to make it to the sea level and who's going to be better in a basement somewhere in research and finding a cure for cancer. So the prestigious nature of the school is you are not only paying for a quality education, you're probably subconsciously paying for a very important influential network once you get out. And you won't find that in their brochures, but that's the truth. So that's the value. The value in that prestigious school is indeed a quality education, but don't think you've got to go to a prestigious school to get the quality education. Networking right now is everything. And it's not what you know thing my dad used to say again. It's not what you know and who you know. And I think networking right now is so important. And as a recruiter, I see it all the time. Another thing too, Dr. McNeely, to your point, is I've had candidates or clients tell me when I send in a couple of candidates. And one candidate, they went in not long ago, told the client that they work full-time and went, went to school during the day, work full-time at night. And I don't know if they drove an Uber or whatever they, was, they did. But he said, you know, I like that, Marianne, because that person has a sense of responsibility. And he didn't just go to school and party all the time. He went to school, but he also worked. So I want a guy like that on my team because he's going to come in here and bring that same work ethic to me. And I said, really? You'd rather take this guy than the other guy that graduated with a 3.6? He said, yes, I would. So to your point, all right, I think that says something about a person when, you know, if they're a B or C student, but they worked. I do think that's that says something. So I agree with you on that. And I want to see why there's a student. Hopefully they're a C student because they're working and not reenacting our modern day version of Animal House with John Belushi. But to your point about networking, you know, I made an observation at these many decades in business that the guy or gal with 10 years experience typically does indeed know twice as much as the person with five years. There is a learning curve, but the person with 20 years doesn't know twice as much as 10 years. The difference is they have a network. They have what you and I would have called a Rolodex. They have this network of resources to go through. It takes a while to develop that. A valuable point of information coming from someone like you as CEO when I ask this question, when somebody comes in to interview with you, Dr. McNeely, and they sit there and tell you how wonderful they are, I've got, I'm checking in my class, 3.6. I guess what I'm getting to here is for our listeners out there, what do you really like to hear? When somebody comes in to interview with you, what kinds of things do they say that get your attention as opposed to things they say that might kind of want you to put this resume over in the other pile here? Tell our listeners out there, what do you look for? when you want to hire somebody in a relatively important role? You know, I'm looking for some differentiation. And frankly, from this generation, if you want to differentiate yourself, show some humility, honest to God. And as you know, we have a lot of students that go to school today to get good grades. And as I tell students, don't go to school to get good grades, go to school to learn. If you go to school to learn, the grades will come automatically. So if you look at everybody trying to puff up that GPA to get into the right school, They're taking all the AP classes, and then they're listing their activities. And I see people coming out of high school or coming out of college where they got 40 activities. So they worked at the soup kitchen for a weekend. That's great. I'm glad they do it. We need people to work soup kitchens for the weekend. But they didn't go back to the soup kitchen the next weekend. They went to the senior center because that's going to be another button on their chest of their resume. So when I see too many charitable activities, too many, too much of a good thing is no longer a good thing. It's almost like they swung the pendulum too far. There is no way you can have all those experiences vertically in depth. So that tells me it's somebody going through life, kind of a drive-by volunteer, just checking off the boxes. So I like to see somebody that had some passion and some extracurricular activity and really dove it down deeply to the point of some legitimacy. So that's one thing that jumps out. 
The differentiation for me, and I encounter it not too often, but when I do, I'm so proud. When somebody walks in and says, look, I made pizzas for the last four years while I was going to school. I have no experience, but I have an appetite. All I'm looking for, sir, is a chance. That person's hired on the spot. Don't walk in trying to impress somebody. The best way to impress somebody is to be yourself. There's only one person to you. That's you. So guys that have made it, gals that have made it, want to share their knowledge, share their passion, and we want to guide the way for the next generation. There's something in that person you're interviewing that's going to remind you about a younger you. Let it happen. Let it play out. So I think these people that come in and knock the door down, I mean, the answer to my question that'll kill you every time. So as you ask somebody what their attributes are, and they stop talking two hours later, having listed the 2,000 of them, you say, what is it that you do bad? And they'll sit back in some contemplative gaze and they'll say, my weakness is I guess sometimes I just care too much. Oh, my God. So, you know, after you throw up in your mouth a little bit, you go brush your teeth and start the interview process over. So my recommendation would be just be yourself. Have some comfort in saying, I don't know. I have no idea, but I can learn faster than anybody. Here's the secret that I would share with the next generation. I don't hire anybody for what they know. I hire you for how fast you're going to learn. Nobody gets hired because whatever you learned in school just four years ago, half of it's already obsolete. So I want somebody that doesn't understand learning is over at the conferral of your degree. The journey's just now starting. So again, we don't hire you for what you know. So if you don't know something, be okay with it. Don't try to fake it. You know, this whole deal, fake it till you make it, you know, at the C-suite, we see right through that. So just be yourself and just demonstrate an ability and a desire to continue learning. No, I think that's powerful information. I really do. And I, I hope all of our people that are out there are, are listening to this because as a recruiter, I think what you've just told people is, is so valuable. It really is. Well, we're getting near the end here and I've really enjoyed talking with you, Dr. McNeely. But before we close here, if, if you had to give our listeners two really valuable tips to help them navigate the new work world. As a CEO, as well as a professor from a very prestigious school, what would those two tips be to help them become their best self? So a couple of interesting things, you know, and you'll smile at this and, and we can both smile. But they say, if you meet somebody and they have anything to do with the state of Texas or Harvard University, you're going to hear about it in the first 30 seconds. And we kind of laugh about that. And it's true, but it's, it's, a, it's a function of pride. <laughs> and then recognizing some of the vitriol that's thrown our way. You have those opportunities, and then you spend the rest of your life distancing yourself from it. A lot of people will tell you, you know, the question is, is college really necessary? But the reality is education is necessary, and education comes in other forms other than college. Now, as a professor, it can't appear that I'm denouncing traditional college, but it's a good conversation because college is getting very, very expensive. You know, at Northwestern and most of the Ivies, we're at 73000 a year, fully loaded. So you're looking at 300000 for an undergrad degree, and that's after tax. So that's a half million worth of gross earnings for an undergrad degree. And oh, by the way, introduce this concept called the opportunity cost. Add to it four years of compensation that you didn't experience because you're in college. And you really need to look at that. And today, what I'm happy to see is there's no longer the stigma there once was to choosing an alternative path to college. On the other hand, one of the pieces of advice that I would do is understand why college is getting expensive. 70% of all people that go to college have some form of aid. 
And there's tremendous aid out there. There are grants and there's loans and there's scholarships and there's tax incentives. And by the way, 30 states have free tuition at their community college. So the pat answer is always, I didn't go to college because I couldn't afford it. Is that just a comfortable excuse because you didn't want to go for what other reason? So I think if people really want the formal college education, the reality is you can either find a way or they can make a way. And I think they need to embrace that. So having said that, the final tip that I would give your listeners is I would tell you, don't buy into the popular narrative. Think for yourself. Take input from many different sources and build your own recipe. You know, philosophy is interesting. Philosophy is a major. Let me tell you what philosophy is. Philosophy is the art of thinking. And in 1970, only 1% of all degrees conferred were in philosophy because it's viewed as somewhat of a useless degree. Since when did learning how to think become useless? And by the way, today, one half of 1% of all degrees conferred are in philosophy. It's really remarkable. So we don't really think anymore. And as a result, we default to confusing our opinion with intellect. Those are two entirely different things. What I want you to do is invoke this art of thinking, invoke some philosophy as you script your career and your life and think for yourself. And I want to give you a case in point. The popular narrative today in this next generation is work-life balance. And with somewhat tongue-in-cheek, I've got an idea. You come to work and work your off, and then you go home and balance it out. I don't accept that it's my responsibility to balance out your life. But the other popular narrative is this next generation will have seven jobs by the time they're 35. And I really want to close with this with some strong emphasis. So I have a student come to me. He's working for Motorola. And we start to talk because he wants some advice. He's had three promotions. He is happy with what he's making. He's happy with his bonus. And he is happy with his boss. And I said, why in the world would you be looking to leave? Is there more upward mobility? He says, yeah, eventually. And he says, but Dr. McNeely, you don't understand. In six months, I will be there 10 years. And I'm worried about how that's going to look on my resume. And I sit back and I point out to him that you're asking this input from somebody that's been in their career and their company over four decades and would be even if I wasn't running it, even if I didn't own it. On that basis, it's learn how to read the room. One, learn how to read the room. It's a better way to get through life. So I close with this. If I said Marianne is, and I went to one of the conferences where you and I crossed path, and I went around that cocktail hour and said Marianne is, and everybody finished that sentence, and then they go back and I aggregate that together, that's your reputation. And by the way, in your case, it would be a very good one, but that's somebody's reputation. Once you have that reputation, if you then leverage it over and over with a degree of consistency, that's your brand. That's your brand. For somebody to buy from you, they first need to be aware that you exist. Then you look for preference. All things being equal, give me the order. Give me the placement. Then you look for loyalty. Hey, let me give you the last call. I really want to give you the order, but you're 3% high. You want to take a look at it. So let's deal with that. Awareness preference, loyalty, and you must go through all those iterative steps to get to something called branding. Because over at branding, are people going to pay you a premium? You're going to pay Starbucks a premium for that coffee. You're going to pay John Smith a premium for hiring him because he's branded. You brand yourself by replicating your reputation over time. If you reset your career, 
and you reset your industry and you reset your employer every three years, you never stay in one place long enough to brand yourself. So my conclusion is don't buy into this current narrative that you can't stay in one place too long, that you got to have seven jobs by the time you're 35 and you're embarrassed in front of your generational peer group if you don't, because the way to differentiate yourself is to think outside the box. That would be my advice. Well, I think that's great advice. And we're just about the end here. And I have to just say to end this, first of all, we're just thrilled that you took the time to be on Career Can Do. But I also have to say, I've been in the audience of Dr. McNeely's keynote speeches probably for over 10 years. And I belong to many organizations, professional organizations. And he always gives great keynotes. And they're always chock full of information and, and real examples of how to deal with things. But at the very end, He always has this great, huge picture of his family, of his grandkids, of the things that he does to give back. And I have to say, he's a real testament, in my opinion, a CEO and a professor that has his priorities in order. He's a real example of how to make our world a better place. So I thank you, Dr. McNeely. You've given our listeners lots of information. And in the great words of Shakespeare, to be or not to be, keep listening to Career Can Do. And please play this podcast over again because there's so much information in here that'll help you navigate the new work world. Thank you, Dr. McNeely, and we'll see you all next time. Bye-bye. We thank you for tuning in to our Career Can Do podcast. We make no guarantees on results for your particular quest, but we hope you enjoy the information presented. Thank you.